I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Welcome to the penultimate episode of season four. This week we are going to be talking about the role of stepmothers. All of these women that we're going to be talking about today have experiences of being stepmothers to um, to royal children. So really when we are looking at our queens as stepmothers, we are talking about the children that they had in common who are Mary, Elizabeth and Edward. I think it's a disclaimer that we kind of do have to get out now. The structure of court and like relationships at court was really formal. So even though we're kind of with our modern perspectives looking for the, you know, cozy uh, familial relationships and we're looking for all the sweet stories, um, it would have been a very formal relationship because yes, these women are your stepmothers but also they're still the queen. You know, you have to show a certain amount of deference and you have to respect the hierarchy of court. So I see a lot of literature and like secondary sources about how certain of our queens were, you know, quote, colder to the children than others, or they didn't really have a relationship or whatever. And that's when you have to remember that these kids are spending the majority of time away from court in their own households. And just, yeah, these women are queens. So there has to be an amount of formality and a a certain amount of deference involved. So just keep that in mind as we go through. It's not going to always be very like warm, touchy, feely. Appearance and kind of hierarchy and structure come first feelings come not even second we're, we're looking at about fourth fourth or fifth place here it's the institution of the monarchy that matters not the individuals and like i say it, it's very easy to kind of paint them as you know disney villains of you know the ev- evil stepmother and kind of very cinderella-esque in in some instances it's just not the case so i think what you have to do is separate separate the two institutions of family and monarchy. As we'll see, the queens took on the role of stepmother in different ways, and it's not to say that they were impolite to the children. They interacted with the children in ways that I think are reflective of their personalities and their politics. So there, there is something, um, and there are at least nice little friendships that arise. And then, of course, we'll end talking about Catherine Parr, who I think is pretty much the only exception to this in the sense that, as we talked about extensively last episode, she, I think, really embraced the role more than the others. Yeah, so we'll, we'll kick this episode off with Anne. It's been a while since we've spoken about Anne, so it's nice to have her back. Yeah, but um, not her finest hour. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, very uh, contentious time in history, Ooh, this is. That's a nice word. So, yeah, it is a very contentious point in history. You know, we've got Henry trying to divorce Catherine, and that Mary is, in fact, a bastard. And in addition to that, Mary's been separated from Catherine of Aragon. You know, she's not allowed to see her. She's not allowed to have any contact with her mother. And then Anne's been ushered in as queen. Um, her and Henry are married. So that's quite a lot to unpack at the age of about 15 to 16, 
where you have a lot of big feelings about a lot of things. So it's easy to see then why she hate. I I was going to say that's a strong word, but I think hate's a valid word. And she pins it onto Anne Boleyn, like Anne Boleyn, her, her existence in Mary's life. She is the architect of all of the misfortune here. Obviously, we know that Henry really is the one whose, quote, fault it all is. But easier for Mary, I think, to pin Anne onto that and see Anne as kind of the the usurper, the one who is the sort of evil, wicked stepmother. Because as you say, Mary suddenly being asked to acknowledge all of these sort of demoralizing things about herself and... I think the biggest thing for her is that in August 1531, she sees her mother for the last time and then they are sent away to separate households and barred from seeing each other and they never see each other again because Catherine dies in exile. And for Anne, Mary is the person who is standing in the way of legitimacy. Anne is chiefly, I think, concerned with showing that she has replaced Catherine now. She is the queen. We've, quote, undone the mistakes. You know, everything is as it should be now. And yet you have the king's daughter sitting over here sulking. As you can imagine, there was butting of heads. It's definitely a two-sided story. It's two stubborn women facing off against each other. So there's no good guy. There's no bad guy. There's, There's two very conflicted political players kind of hard to tell because there is a lot of Spanish propaganda and imperial propaganda that surrounds Mary in this period. The the sort of chief pot stirrer here is the imperial ambassador, Eustace Chapuis. We mention him here a lot. Gossip Girl. He, he lives for stuff like this. This is he literally, does. he's like, I'm, I'm having the best time. <laughs> and once Catherine of Aragon is sent away from court, Chapuis really takes it on himself to be their chief champion at court. And he takes a huge interest in Mary and her reputation. And he's constantly reporting to all of his associates in Europe, who's being nice to Mary and who isn't being nice to Mary. And public enemy number one for him is Anne Boleyn, the concubine, the whore, all the various names he gives her. And unfortunately, his writings are the only real sources we have for that conflict so we're going to talk about them but just keep in mind like you know as with him always take it with a grain of salt just because he might have been exaggerating some things to make Anne look as bad as possible but we do know that Anne for I think legitimate political reasons was very wary of Mary Mary, until the end, would always refer to her as, like, My Lady Pembroke, um, referencing Anne's title as Marquess of Pembroke rather than as the Queen. When Anne would ask her to do things for her, it would be, the Queen asked you to do this, and Mary would say things like, I know no Queen but my mother, so I don't know what you mean. Um, You know, she would kind of be witty and play dumb. So the two were always um, locked in this sort of stalemate of, Anne isn't going to be kind to Mary until Mary acknowledges her as queen. And Mary is never going to acknowledge Anne as queen. So what do you do? And I think Anne starts to maybe get a little bit frustrated, a little bit desperate, because she's so 
paranoid about, you know, she fought hard to get to this position. She's on shifting sands. She needs all of the strength and support she can get. Mary can't stand in the way of that. So probably her worst chapter in all of this is that she sends Mary to be part of the household of Elizabeth I. The, this is where the myths and legends kind of kick in because I see this being painted as a Cinderella story a lot of the time. Like Mary is sent to go be the quote servant to Elizabeth, the baby Elizabeth. Um, but no, she was just sent to be part of Elizabeth's household. But then at the same time, um, the woman who's in charge of running Elizabeth's household is Anne's aunt, um, Lady Anne Shelton. And Anne Shelton de facto becomes Mary's governess. So Mary is really kind of like in the lion's den here. Um, she's being pressured constantly to give in to the demands of her father and of Anne, um, denounce her mother. She's not being treated as her status demands. She's not allowed to go to mass. Um, her room is searched regularly. So she is really kind of under house arrest. She is a prisoner. There is some evidence, though, that Anne tried to take the higher road, um, and she extended at least one, maybe more olive branches to Mary, because I think she probably realized that intimidating somebody with powerful friends is not a great idea. And I think it really, as as you were saying before the recording, it, it really starts to shift once Catherine of Aragon dies in early 1536, and that natural living breathing obstacle for Anne is kind of eliminated like we've you know we've cut one obstacle down so let me try to make amends to Mary now and see if I can resolve this this is one of my favorite interactions because I think you can see the full-on where Mary inherits her father's stubbornness as well as her mother's stubbornness and she she's just not backing down and it brings me so much joy Anne writes to her and says I'm happy to, and this is the quote that she uses, act like another mother. And Mary's response is just, um, she turns around to Anne and just says no. Yeah, this is battle of the iron wills here. So um, <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. We are not getting anywhere. It's, um, it's a complicated relationship. And definitely, if you look at it from the perspective of Mary the First, this is kind of the wicked stepmother it's a relationship that's played to the most dramatic degree possible. And then on the other hand, you have the Anne Boleyn enthusiasts who try to absolve her of any wrongdoing in all of this. And it's really, I think we have to look at it as two very politically savvy, empowered, intelligent women not bending whatsoever and having their very legitimate reasons for believing the things that they do and acting the way that they do even if it's horrible. <laughs> but again, I think I think to your point, and this is something that we do really need to stress, it's a nuanced story with two people telling the same story, but from different points of view. And that is something, yeah, you can't just look at one side or the other. It's hard because like we said, most of the things that Mary was angriest about were Henry's doing and not Anne's. I'm sure influenced by Anne to some degree, but in the end... Like, Henry was the one who was denying Mary the visitation to her mother. And Henry yeah. was the one who was telling Mary that she needed to uh, deny her mother's marriage and queenship and everything. Was Anne there? Yes. But was Anne the source of it all? Probably not. But that doesn't erase the fact that Anne played into it. And it was part of her Anne's political strategy to 
distance herself from Mary, to potentially mistreat Mary so much that it kind of threatened her into going along with everything. So it's just, yeah, it's many, many layers. So safe to say with Mary's first stepmother, there wasn't a lot of deference going on. Um, I mean, they were hardly ever in the same room together, so there was really no room for that. Where we really start to see Mary interacting with her stepmothers in a more positive way or formal way is when Henry marries Jane Seymour in 1536. I think the interesting, like, we're going to be talking a lot about Mary in particular as the stepchild of these women because she's the elder of them. And, I mean, she's 15, 16 years old when Anne Boleyn really comes onto the scene. And thereafter, all of the other of our queens are very comparable in age to her. So she's really the one who's doing the most interacting with all of them. So you really start to see that relationship with Jane Seymour. Like, there's a lot of talk about the political maneuvering that Jane had to do to even be considered for the throne and that some of Catherine of Aragon's supporters were specifically backing Jane because Jane had promised in some way to get Mary reinstated into the line of succession. So Jane has always been seen as a champion, I think, of Mary and loyal to Mary's cause, not only as somebody who was probably more sympathetic to the conservative, you know, religious faction at court, but as somebody who was supportive of Henry's first marriage and not Anne Boleyn. Well, it plays quite neatly into that narrative that we have of her, doesn't it, of the anti-Anne and the antithesis of everything that Anne Boleyn was. She was not directly involved with the removal or the embarrassment or humiliation, whatever it is you want to call it, that went along with Catherine of Aragon and Henry's marriage uh, being dissolved. Jane was able to position herself in a way that she could talk to Mary about it and make her see sense. Because probably to Mary's surprise, the intimidation tactics that she probably more associated with Anne Boleyn, guess what? They didn't stop when Anne Boleyn died because Henry was still there and Henry was still really adamant. And eventually Mary has to agree and sign the paperwork that says, yeah, I'm illegitimate. My parents were never married. My status is lessened. But like you said, I think Jane was probably instrumental in mediating that to some extent. Like, obviously, the sentence is still pretty harsh. And Jane couldn't have done anything to change Henry's mind on that point, because once he's angry, he's angry. But she could still offer herself to Mary as a friend at court, And that's really, I think, Jane's legacy with Mary is just, like we were saying last week with Catherine Parr, having that stepping stone between you and the king is really helpful and even more helpful when that person is in kind of a more maternal, softer role. Of course, Jane was only about eight or so years older than Mary. So it's not going to be a direct maternal role. Like Mary isn't necessarily looking at Jane as a new mother, but they can still be friends. They can still be allies. And Jane can still be that kind of cushion between the tempers of Mary and Henry. Jane can go to her as a friend. And she could, if not say it directly, say it indirectly of saying, look, things are only going to get worse for you here. I'm looking out for you, but you have to meet me halfway. It's the idea of, come on now, be sensible, 
things can only get worse for you if you carry on like this. And like you said, I think Mary's very receptive to that softer approach. She does not do well with being threatened because, again, that Tudor temper comes out and she's like, Although funny that uh, Henry attributes it to her her Spanish temper. It's not. It's not me. It's, it's not his. From oh. her mom. <laughs> Which um, I calls mean... it. It's both of them. To be fair, they were. <laughs> yeah, you got the Tudor rage on one side, and then you got you know Isabel of Castile Inquisition on the other side. So it's it's a it's a perfect storm there. It's nice because we because both of his previous wives have now died. Mary can see jane as the queen and it's not a political issue um she can accept that her father has remarried this woman she does refer to herself in some letters as jane's quote daughter but it seems to be more of that kind of formal um you know show show that deference and yet the the letters also show that mary has a lot of respect for jane as a person there is that level of affection friendship between them i mean when jane is pregnant with edward mary sends her a special shipment of all of the foods that she was craving and says like uh, i hope you feel better soon take care of yourself yeah i heard you were craving cucumbers here are some from my garden so there is that 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 level that's like one step above just the the formalities there's an understanding between these two women that goes beyond official courtly deference as you said it which is a very nice way of saying it by the way um it's friendly and warm enough between mary and jane that jane can actually get mary and henry in a room together i see a lot of talk though especially like online on on blogs and stuff that though she was a champion of mary and she was that mediator between henry and mary she didn't I think I saw one person say, quote, extend the same kindness to Elizabeth. I do want to address that because Elizabeth, this is Elizabeth's first stepmother. She's about two and a half when Henry marries Jane Seymour. They wouldn't have had a relationship in the sense that they ever actually knew each other just because Elizabeth was so young and because Jane was only queen for about a year. I don't know. I think we have to cut Jane some slack because she's coming into this into court in the wake of Anne Boleyn. All of this stuff has happened, but we can't really talk about it for fear of upsetting Henry. And we're left with this little girl who's being raised outside of court. Henry doesn't really care too much about her at this point because she's just a little girl and she reminds him of the scandal with her mother. So Jane wouldn't have really politically had the opportunity to visit or see Elizabeth or act as the same kind of mediator because this there's just this baby and everything is much too fresh. And Elizabeth isn't at the point where she can advocate for herself yet. So I think that might have changed if Jane hadn't died. But for the situation Jane was in, it makes sense to me that she didn't really have much affection for Elizabeth because she wasn't allowed to. It's really difficult because Jane can't take on an active motherly role for Elizabeth yet, you know, and and Jane is someone who, as a person, can only achieve so much. And I think we've spoken about this before. It, it was in terms of religion that, you know, um, Jane proposed something or suggested something that Henry didn't like, and he told her very quickly to learn her place and to stay in her lane, effectively. So Jane, too, has to step very, very carefully here um, for want of not ending up the same way. 
the next stepmother for all of the children and the first of our queens to have all three of the Tudor children as her stepchildren is Anne of Cleves. Kind of an interesting one because in the six months that Anne of Cleves is actually the Queen of England, there's not a ton of room for her to forge bonds with her stepchildren. She saw them, of course, especially the girls, when she first arrived in England. So Mary and Elizabeth were present at the wedding between Henry and Anne of Cleves because Mary and Elizabeth were considered the kind of foremost women in England, like on that court hierarchy. They would have been responsible for receiving Anne, and Anne would have shown them some kind of deference as well. So the formalities were there, but in terms of a personal relationship, yeah, there's not really time for it in six months. Because Anne's busy doing a lot of other things and trying to wrap her head around a lot of other stuff. After the divorce, though, Anne is given the title of... It comes in various forms, but essentially it's like the king's beloved sister or something. And it's meant to kind of give Anne that status within the courtly hierarchy, where she's not queen... And she's not one of the king's children, but she's within the family. Like, she's to be shown that same deference. She would probably, on the hierarchy in terms of the women, she would be under Elizabeth. So Mary and Elizabeth especially, but then also Edward on occasion, are very used to seeing her around court at her being kind of lumped into their family group in some ways, especially at formal courtly functions. And I think through that, they do forge a relationship with her. It's not necessarily a maternal one because like we said, she was only their stepmother for six months, but she is a member of the family, kind of in the way that like a family friend would be included in your family group. Um, She's there and they do like her and they seem to get along. And then the thing to remember, Anne and Mary only have a bit, like a year separating them like depending on when you think Anne of Cleves was born a year or less yeah it's not much at all no so they were of the same age they had similar interests like both of them really like to play cards and gamble so they did that a lot and it's easy to see then that um, Mary regards Anne as a member of her family but more in like a family friend sisterly friend kind of way definitely not as a mother but even when Anne dies in 1557 whilst Mary is queen Mary buries her with all the respect that Anne was owed as a once queen of England I think that's such a really nice personal touch as well because had they they were close and had that bond that was a lasting bond And when Mary became queen and she entered into London for the first time, you know, she processed into London, the people who were behind her, um, riding immediately behind her in the procession were Elizabeth, her sister, you know, to show that support. And then Anne of Cleves was there too, riding next to Elizabeth. So just to show that this was a kind of tight family unit of like, we're all the, we're the highest ladies of the kingdom. Not only do we like each other, but we have to be showing that kind of, um, that support. We're all one unit. There's less evidence that Elizabeth and Anne of Cleves had any kind of like particularly strong relationship. I mean, we can assume that because Anne was around all the time that she and Elizabeth 
liked each other um, and that Elizabeth had respect for her, but it's just not documented. We don't know. Uh, I think it's interesting, though, that a lot of people like Tracy Borman has speculated whether Anne was kind of part of the crowd of women who influenced Elizabeth. I don't know if we can ignore the fact that Anne of Cleves was a wealthy land-owning single woman. You know, she never remarried after Henry. She held a ton of status at court. And whether or not Elizabeth kind of looked at her and said, oh, okay, so you can do it. I like to think that she did look at her and, and think that, but I think even if we can't necessarily take that as a definite yes or no answer, because we're never going to know, I just kind of need that wholesome element, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, Edward's there too, but... um the sort of the pitfall with all of this, unfortunately, with Edward is that he's so much younger that he doesn't really have the chance to form any adult relationships with these people. So we can't really tell. But not to say, though, that she wasn't a ever-present figure at his court. So she was always treated with deference in the court of Edward. He clearly respected her as a member of his family. So there was, again, there's a relationship there. It's just maybe not as well documented as the one with Mary because Edward is a child. Yeah, no, one, no one's writing this down for him, <laughs> which is frustrating. Catherine Howard? Catherine Howard. We, this, one, this one was weird to me. And when I say weird to me, because when I thought stepmothers, do you know, uh, I thought of everybody else. Who did not factor into my little brain hole? Catherine Howard. Probably because she was a child herself. Like, yeah. she's just as much in need of a stepmother as any of these orphan children. Literally. She is it. And I think, how old? Mary's seven years older than her, give or take. Yeah. So... Uh, don't know when Catherine Howard exactly was born, but yeah, anywhere from like five to eight years older. Yeah. It's so. I think, again, here there was potential for things to go a little bit sideways in terms of the relationship. You know, Henry's married someone younger than his oldest daughter. Society hasn't changed so much that I think there wouldn't have been a little bit of an ick factor for Mary. Yeah. Like, it's not wholly uncommon that your father remarries a younger woman, but is it comfortable? No. No. <laughs> no, not at all. Not in the slightest. And this, again, is an interesting relationship to me because this is a relationship where Mary did nothing but look down her nose at Catherine and just kind of was very like, snooty about it and would kind of find any cause and any reason to be disrespectful towards Catherine. I think there's a letter from Chapuis that said Mary was openly disrespectful towards Catherine Howard, so Catherine threatened to take away two of her lady's maids until she said sorry. And it was at that point that Mary said that she was sorry or did whatever it was she needed to do because Chapoy was light on the details. And the two were from that point on, at the very least, cordial towards each other. I think this relationship is also a good gauge for us trying to kind of decipher these relationships because the relationship between Mary and Catherine Howard is one of polite deference. I know Catherine Howard isn't really queen for a long time, but she's queen for about the same amount of time as Jane Seymour was. And when you contrast the relationship of Mary and Jane Seymour to her relationship with Catherine Howard, it's really easy to see that with Jane Seymour, Mary did forge something beyond that deference. Whereas Catherine Howard, it was just enough, like you said, to maintain 
um, cordial family relations. So it's kind of cute then to look at Catherine's relationship with Elizabeth, because Elizabeth is getting older. We know that she's a precocious enough kid that she, very well spoken, she would have probably disarmed Catherine. Oh, completely. One thing that people don't necessarily remember is that Catherine and Elizabeth were actually related. They weren't just stepmother, stepdaughter. They were second cousins, first cousins once removed, because Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard are first cousins. Their parents were siblings. So according to some sources, again, there's not a ton of evidence for this, so it might not be true. It might be kind of like a Victorian, like the Victorians wanted wholesome content too, so they invented all these stories. But according to a couple of sources, Catherine at her wedding feast was very adamant that Elizabeth be granted the place of honor to the left of her at the table because Elizabeth, quote, was of her own blood and lineage. So she wanted to honor her. And for a little girl who has grown up in the shadows since her mother was executed, that was probably a really big moment for her. She's being brought to court at all which probably was always a really big deal for her, but she's meeting this new mother. She's being singled out by this new mother and being shown not only respect as the king's daughter, but also some kind of familial affection too. So whether or not that's true, don't know, but if it is, that is kind of, that's very gracious of Catherine. The Victorians kind of frustrate me a little bit sometimes. And this is a conversation really for a different day, because like you said, there's that, um, they wanted the wholesome content and it's the over over romanticization of a lot of things however this to me does not seem out the, outside the realms of possibility um, you know even if elements of it have been embellished you know to the extent that she'd been given a seat next to Catherine or if she was just there I think either way the fact that she's in the room is the important thing you know she's she's not completely inept in the way that a lot of people think about her and I think Again, it's being subtle and it's being smart about how she's exercising her her position. It's clear that Catherine was trying to bring Elizabeth into it, which she's about the age where that's going to start to matter to her. You know, she's old enough to be cognizant of her status and try to reach out for whatever kind of adult, especially women figures in her life that she can. So tragic then that um you know the first stepmother that she really bonds with like as a stepmother is the one who is executed because not only is that um you know another problematic connection for elizabeth like great you're related to the the two wives who are accused of treason and executed but uh a lot of people who examine elizabeth psychologically have pointed to this moment as maybe one of the moments when she realizes just the consequences of the game of court and of marriage. Obviously, she would have known about it with her mother, but this is her experiencing it for the first time with somebody that she knows and had a relationship with. That will ruin a kid. <laughs> that will, that's not good. There's one thing to hear about it. You know, your imagination can kind of shut itself off or do what it will. But to experience it, it's something completely different. There's a popular, often repeated story that doesn't have any 
source attached to it. It's one of those um, sort of fun little tidy history apocryphal stories that come to us through the internet. But tell me everything. Some, <laughs> some some people think that when Elizabeth first found out what happened to Catherine Howard and that she was going to be executed, Elizabeth declared to her friend Robert Dudley that she'll never marry. Like it's supposed to be this like landmark moment in the in the life of the Virgin Queen where she suddenly, you know, turns to her friend and says I shall never marry. And it's it's because she's experiencing this traumatic episode. And while I don't think that happened, I can imagine that she was pretty scarred by it. Sort of the first harsh lesson in her life that actions and words matter and have consequence. And this game is fatal for a lot of people. You know, it, it, it can't not have an impact on her. And... The common thread, just, you know, as we wrap up talking about each of these women, is that we don't really know what her relationship with Edward was like because he was a small child. <laughs> she she would have known him, certainly. Um, she would have had some exposure to him. But as the heir to the throne and as the only male heir, he spends most of his time away from court lest he, you know, catch a bad disease. And so she probably didn't see very much of him. It's not like she was his mother and so made purpose visits to go visit him like Henry would have. Um, she probably only saw him when he was brought to court and even then he was a small child. So not much to say there, unfortunately. It's like we've been saying though, people aren't, uh, annoyingly people aren't writing these things down because they're not seemingly not important. To us they are. To us we want to shape the pages of our book that tell us that don't tell us the things that we want. But I'd say like a lot of these relationships were meant to be formal and it all culminates with the final of our Queens and stepmother supreme, Catherine Parr. She uh we we talked about her in the last episode just so we could kind of really pay tribute to her role in more detail but obviously worth mentioning here again that she was very close to all three of the children and in ways that none of the others did she really stepped up to the role of being their surrogate mother she championed them in ways that I think had a profound effect on their lives, especially the two younger ones. With Mary, she was again a friend and an ally at court, and Mary did refer to her as her mother, again just because of formalities, but it, like we said before, it went above just the formality. They, they did seem to be close, they had a lot in common, they spent a lot of time together, so Catherine really, I think, is the quintessential of the stepmothers of our queens for very good reason. And that might be because she was not new to the role. She had two stepchildren from her second marriage to Lord Latimer. So she especially became really close to his daughter, Margaret. Uh, I mean, Margaret came to court with her after her father died and after Catherine became queen. So they established a very close bond too that's kind of comparable with the one that she forged with Elizabeth. By all accounts her stepson, the new Lord Latimer, was kind of an ass so there wasn't much of a relationship there but she did know 
kind of what to do in the role. And apparently Latimer was really interested in having a wife who could mother his children. So she would have known that that would be uh, an effective way to step into a family. When she becomes queen, she makes it pretty clear from the get-go that she doesn't necessarily want to go around Henry and she doesn't want to overstep her place, but she does want to have a united front. She wants the royal family to be united and no more drama. She's really the, the facilitator of that. And as we see, she brings all of the children under her wing in different ways, but in ways that clearly all it, that touched all of the children. I think it really makes the most sense, um, the way that she went about it. How do you present a united front? Well, you actually be a united front. You, you bring everybody back into the fold. And I think in part, yes, she's a very, she's an experienced stepmother and she, she understands that role a bit more how, like of how to create a family and how to integrate herself into a family. But I think at the same time, she has the advantage of being with the children at the right time. Uh, you know, they're, they're all old enough that she can kind of bring them under her wing and, and form relationships with them. And I think she was a little bit less fearful. I don't know. Maybe it's the wrong thing to say of forming those bonds with the children because enough time had passed that the repercussions of her doing that and doing it out in the open weren't as scary as you know for instance with Jane and Elizabeth. I like what you said about her trying to create her own relationships with the children and keeping Henry involved but really embracing that role as the mediator between him and his children and making sure that all the children knew that they were safe with her that she could be a confidant for them and that middleman and we touched on it last episode when we were talking about education, but you can see her really investing in all three of the children as people. Uh, even Mary, there was a four-year gap between Catherine and Mary. Catherine was four years older than Mary. So again, it was more of like a friendly, uh, sisterly role, if anything, but she still gives that encouragement to Mary. She still is advocating for Mary. She still is interested in what Mary's doing and potentially, um, you know, negotiating marriages for Mary. She's right there and she's invested in Mary as a person, much more so Elizabeth and Edward because they're younger. She's talking with them about their education, which for them is the most important thing that they have going on in their lives. She brings the children to Hampton Court when Henry is off away in France just because she wants to make sure that they know that they're all together in this time of war. I mean, it was kind of a an arbitrary war, Henry playing at it, but still it's a time of war and your father is off in a dangerous situation. Let's all be together. Let's Let me make sure that you know that I value you and we're all together. So yeah, you just get this sense that she's not just going through the motions of it. It's not just the courtly ritual of it. She actually does care about these children as people and as part of her family. And probably the case in point for that is when Henry dies, 
Elizabeth joins Catherine's household. So instead of staying within her own household as older royal children usually do, like Mary did, for instance, Elizabeth joins Catherine's household at Chelsea in London. And Catherine really does take on that maternal role for her. She's Elizabeth's guardian. So it, Elizabeth wouldn't have done that. It's, it's kind of an unusual thing. Elizabeth wouldn't have done that if Catherine hadn't forged that very personal bond with her that went beyond just all the polite deference. I like that idea that um, you just mentioned, that she gets to know them as people. She, I think she, uh, you know, she understands them first as people, then as political players. You can almost see her sitting there thinking, this, these are people and these they, they need to be educated and they need to, dare I say it, be loved or at least, you know, have a safe space. And I think her understanding that is the key to understanding Catherine Parr because she she's she's smart she's a very good political player in her own right but at the end of the day she's not going to use the children to get what she wants and to negotiate what she wants that's that's not what she's there for and if with elizabeth the first if you're looking for the women who shaped her then catherine's pretty high on that list right i mean after henry, yeah after henry died Elizabeth becomes Catherine's ward, essentially. She's put into Catherine's household. There is a falling out. There is drama because of Catherine's new husband, Thomas Seymour. Elizabeth is sent away. I don't want to get into too many of the murky details because that's a minefield. That's an episode of itself. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to it at some point. But <laughs> the repercussions are clear emotionally because elizabeth is sent away for whatever reason from the household or chooses to go because of scandal and she writes letters to a pregnant catherine parr showing just how much affection there is like i miss you and i i long for the day when we can be reunited and i hope that you're well and again the sad thing being that uh catherine parr dies in childbirth shortly after so elizabeth never sees her again and elizabeth is distraught like this is just yet another person in her life who has been taken away from her like we said it's we don't often get windows into these people's emotions and we don't confidently get to say a lot of the time that these people loved each other or like we can't pinpoint exactly the feelings between these people but this is one instance when you can clearly see that Catherine was for all intents and purposes Elizabeth's mom and Elizabeth when Catherine died Elizabeth lost her mom um so I think as we bring this episode to a close I think I've enjoyed this one this one's been fun I always like the ones where we bring all of the queens together. Uh, you know, we, we go down the line and we talk about how the same subject affected all of them. So a nice little jaunt through the timeline. It's been a while since we've done that as well. And I, I don't yeah. think we get to trot everybody out as much now in, in one episode as we did when we first started either. And yeah, this is, I think, motherhood this season. We're talking about topics that unite all of them. Yeah, And more so than any of the other sort of subcategories of motherhood that we've talked about this season, stepmotherhood, is that a word? It, it, it does now. unite. 
it is now it does unite all of them because you could even argue as we will with Catherine of Aragon that she did take on a role akin to that of a stepmother again we will talk about that later but from Anne Boleyn onwards they literally were stepmothers to the same stepchildren so yeah it's it's just interesting to see how they interact with the exact same position and the exact same role because it's so telling about all of them and their personalities. Motherhood shouldn't be a political tool, um, but in this case, it it is. And, you know, you can kind of see the, the some of them drawing lines in the sand about the politics and, and the children, you know, and, and kind of how they step around it. Um, for instance, like we were saying with Jane Seymour, maybe kind of leaving... Not leaving Elizabeth out in the cold, but focusing more on her relationship with Mary because she could do more there. She could do more good there. And then you kind of com- compare that with Catherine Parr, who is able to have a relationship with all of the children because she's got the benefit of being able to treat them first as people and the benefit of time as well. So like you said, it's interesting to see how each of them um, come into contact with these these royal children um, and as to the later as to the throne and provide us a window into how they navigated it because this isn't something that you see you know it's not an everyday occurrence that for Mary she's got five stepmothers it's not a normal thing in the 16th century to have that many stepmothers much for listening to this episode of six queens in the next episode kate and i will discuss how henry VIII's children remembered their mothers after their deaths in the meantime you can follow us on twitter instagram and facebook and if you've enjoyed it please leave a rating and a review long with the queens